welcome to the MFS All Angles podcast. My name is Vishen Docha and I'm the Global Head of Sustainability Strategy here at MFS. The goal of this series is to unpack the wonderful world of ESG investing, one conversation at a time. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. In this episode, I'm joined by Barnaby Wiener, our Global Head of Sustainable Investing and Stewardship, Portfolio Manager, and, as you're about to find out, many other things at MFS. We have a really wide-ranging conversation. We end up talking about altruism, Barnaby's favourite books, climate change, his perspectives on the ESG landscape, and so many more things. I hope that you take from this conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. Barnaby, before we kick off, you're a well-known entity to many, I'm sure, of the audience, but I thought I'd begin by asking you a little bit about your history, how you got here, and some of your career highlights to date. So instead of reading out your illustrious uh, biography so far, I thought I'd ask you to summarize your own sort of potted history and, and what brought you here. Sure. Um well, the honest answer is I got here by accident, um, but it was a very fortuitous accident. Um, I, uh, I I had no ambition to enter uh, the financial services industry when I was growing up. In fact, when I, I read history at university, then I spent five years in the British Army. Um, and in my mid, mid-20s, I actually thought I was going to become a screenwriter. But I was disabused of that notion after 12 months of working in uh, in bars and restaurants to fund my um, direction of screenwriting career. So I eventually ended up just trying to get a job um, and, and it worked for a, a stockbroking firm. Um, and then and I was in a couple of stockbroking firms over a four year period. And, and, and then I got approached by a, a, a headhunter who I happened to that I knew from my time in the army who said he was doing a search for a um, a company called Massachusetts Financial Services. This was in late 1997, and I'd never heard of Massachusetts Financial Services. Um, uh, and I went along really just to sort of to, to keep him happy um, because he was desperate to find candidates. Uh, and this this firm had was trying to build a, a a European or a London-based office. And I went along and met a couple of people. Um, one was Marcus Smith, the other David Antonelli, both of whom um, served at for over 20 years and only recently left the firm. And I, des- I decided actually it seemed like a, a, a rather nice place to work and a much more interesting job. Um, and fortunately, I didn't disgrace myself and they made me an offer and I've been here for ever since, which is um, getting on for 24 years. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, the, the journey that you've had, um, I don't know if you wouldn't mind going into in terms of, you know, your responsibilities not only as an analyst and building out the London team but also your portfolio management responsibilities again some of the audience will be very very familiar with your current role but I think it's really interesting and as we'll unpack um, through this conversation on sustainability the you know some of your positions on the more value-oriented funds and I'm sure we can get into kind of value growth um, uh, might be really interesting for people just to put some context around some of the comments that I'm sure we're going to get into later. Sure. I mean, so I, I, I felt very, I was very lucky in, in so many different respects, but one thing was, you know, I, I, I've had the 
security of working for a, a very well-established firm that's that's run in the right way with you know very much a long-term focus uh, and and a and a deep commitment to um, growing the uh, the international business, which at the time I joined was you know irrelevant to the firm from a from an assets uh, and revenue perspective. Um, but it was you know in the early days it was really like working for a startup. I mean when I joined, but there were. Um, five of us in total in the London office across investment and distribution. In fact, we 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 started. We actually moved into our own office the day I joined. Um, and when we had our first Christmas party, we actually had to invite our spouses to to make it a, a party. Otherwise, it would have just been um, too small a gathering to count. Um, and 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 so I spent four or five years as as an analyst with um, uh, initially just two other people, Steve Gorham, who's still obviously at the firm, and, and Marcus Smith, covering. Europe, um, and then and then after that, um, that sort of through the the tech bubble and the burst, and then in about two, late two thousand and two, I took on a role as as portfolio manager of um, initially working with Steve, in fact, on international value and also starting our, our European value um, uh, uh, franchise. Um, and uh, yeah, no, and I, I did that for well over ten years. So I had and and then. Um, uh, in 2011, I, I I took on this new mandate of Prudent, was originally Prudent Wealth and now Prudent Capital as well, which is obviously the more sort of absolute return oriented, long only approach. Um, and in between, I, I spent six years actually as the as sort of director of research for the European team until I managed to um, offload that responsibility onto Chris Jennings. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, thinking about the comments, so. You know, you talked about five years in the army. You talked about your um, career aspirations before that, and sort of how you found your way into MFS. What's kept you here for twenty four years? Why do you choose to do what you do? Um, and it, again, it's interesting to think about the evolution of your role, and and you've served in, in so many different capacities. But you know, one of the hardest questions at interview, I think, is you know, what is your why? So I'm going to ask it to you, Barnaby. What what is your why? Why do you stay here? What's kept you here? For twenty four years, and what excites you about the role that you're in today? Sure, I mean, I think it, it boils down really to two things. One is it's a really interesting job, and secondly is it's a really nice place to work. You know, you know, I'm, I'm I've been surrounded by people I enjoy seeing on a day to day basis, um, and um, and also related to that, you know, I've been very lucky in the sense of I've always felt I had a lot of autonomy. Um, even as an analyst, you know, I, the, the, that the excitement of particularly coming from the sell side where you have a very narrow coverage, um, you know, being given a, a, a fairly you know, vast coverage of, of European stocks to, and, and, and basically being told to, you know, manage my time as I see fit and focus on the things that I think are important and, you know, choose what I think the firm should be investing in and, and having a very supportive group around me. And that's lasted all the way through when, you know, from being a portfolio manager, from being director of research and obviously most recently being being head of sustainability. So, yeah, it really comes down to that fascinating job and uh, and um, and great place to work. And, and I think the other thing is that, um, you know, I, in some ways I am quite a restless individual in that respect. It's sort of slightly surprising that I'm still here after 24 years, but I've been able to sort of reinvent myself a few times, you know, as as uh, I intimated before. I mean, I, I, I managed and co-managed the value strategies for many years. Um, but actually after a while, I sort of began to find the sort of 
constraints of, of a sort of strict relative return approach to investing a bit limiting. And, and I was given the opportunity to, to devise a, you know, a much more flexible product in the, in the shape of prudent wealth and prudent capital than equally um, in the more, you know, in the sort of last sort of five to 10 years of my career, I've become much more interested in, in the sort of broader impact of what we do. Um, and, and, that, and, and the sort of, obviously that sort of, you know, links to the whole sustainability side and, 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 um, and then, you know, I was given the opportunity to sort of really sort of take a leading role there, um, which has given me a, a new lease of life. So I think it, that, that's been, that's one factor. I've, you know, been very lucky to keep getting interesting new challenges that I've you know, been allowed to take on. Definitely. Let's, um, focus on your latest reinvention of self then on sustainability. Um, and maybe obviously this conversation is, you know, trying to dig deep and sort of uncover sort of your philosophy, your views on sort of ESG and integration and where that is. But but why is ESG important to you today? And, and maybe just for the listeners, maybe describe your sort of approach, how you think about that in your kind of day to day work as a portfolio manager. Sure. I mean, in some respects, it has always been a, a, an important part of my uh, approach to investing in as much as I've always, I've always wanted to invest in sustainable companies, you know, companies that are, uh, um, are, are run for the long term and are going to be around for the long term and also managed in the right way. I mean, I've always put a high value on uh, management quality and corporate culture and, you know, that, kind, that, that that's always been important to me. And I think that's a, an integral part of sustainable investing. Um, I think more recently, and I say recently, in the last you know, five, 10 years, I've become more and more conscious of some of the very real shortcomings of our ecosystem. And when I talk about our ecosystem, I'm not just talking about the, the asset management industry, I'm talking about the whole sort of you know, financial and corporate ecosystem that we're a part of. And, you know, I think that on the one hand, you know, this excessive, there's clearly excessive short termism, which um, it manifests itself in so many different ways. Uh, and that's unhealthy uh, uh, for, it's unhealthy for long term value creation, but it's also really unhealthy for society because it incentivizes the wrong sort of behavior. An ally with that, I think I've become much more conscious of some of the, the social inequities and the environmental challenges we face. And, and so, um, you know, if, if we want to, our ecosystem to endure and we want you know, our, our, our industry to endure, you know, we have to play a part in correcting that imbalance. Um, and, and so that's, I think, why I've become so... It, it, it's, my interest has gone from being sort of remote to really sort of acute as a result of that. Is there, is there anything you think that sort of catalyzed that for you? Um, you you're an, one thing I appreciate just standing back a little bit about you is the clarity of your thinking and the way you articulate your thought process. And I'm just curious, as you think about going from sort of remote to kind of, you know, really in a driving seat position on how we're doing this not only as a firm but our stance in the industry i'm just curious if there's anything that's really influenced you as we all know i think the marketplace and many investors are on a journey 
And I'm always really interested as to when the sort of light bulb moment might have been. It may not have just been one moment. It's very unlikely to be just one thing. But just curious, is, is there anything that sort of stands out to you as you think back to anything that where the sort of penny really dropped in terms of the relative importance of those two major factors that you just mentioned? Um, it's hard to sort of necessarily pinpoint one thing. But what I will say is that, you know, if I, if I look at way my sort of life has evolved, uh, I, I started out, um, you know, for the first 30 years of my life, I think, you know, I, I was interested in nothing other than um, sort of personal gratification of one sort or another. I was, you know, I was seeking pleasure and experience um, and really had very little energy for anyone else's problems. I was basically deeply selfish. Um, and then I think, you know, the next phase was um, uh, getting married and, and, and starting a family. So I suppose I became marginally less selfish then because I was able to look out for my immediate family. But I think it was only really when I sort of probably turned, um, you know, turned 40 or around about that time that I sort of really started to think about sort of uh, my sort of the bigger picture in any real earnestness. And, and so I got... It, 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 and I initially sort of thought about it more from a philanthropic perspective and thinking, I was thinking, what what could I do to to share um, my good fortune and you know and, and be a bit more sort of thoughtful in 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 how we thought about philanthropy. But and then it evolved from that because we, um, my wife and I set up a charitable foundation and we initially just thought in terms of how how we give the money away. But then she actually kept on badgering me and saying, well, how are we investing it? I said, oh, don't worry about that. that that's, you know, we, we, let's focus, you know, we, we invested to make as much money as possible. And, then we, and, and, and eventually I sort of started to sort of question that. And, and actually there was one, um, there was a very interesting guy called James Perry, who is the uh, co-founder of a company called Cook. You probably are familiar with it if you're in the UK. You know, this is the uh, frozen, fro- frozen food uh, business that they have shops on in most towns now. Um, and a, and a very f- interesting, well-run company, and indeed a B Corp. Um, and he, he's a, a, a real sort of cheerleader for this idea of, you know, how to how to deploy deploy capital in a way that's sort of aligned with philanthropy. And he wrote a brilliant uh, little sort of article called "The Return of Capital," and it was all about how how capital, um, you know, play, the, the importance of, of 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 capital markets and in terms of resource allocation and how how if done properly that could be transformational for the world and there's one wonderful quote in it which is we all know money talks but can it sing and that really resonated with me and so i think that was probably the start that that was a maybe if there was one penny drop moment it that, that it was reading that and thinking yes you know we really we need to really rethink how we deploy how we how we think about money because we, we we live in this world where it's, we have we we love humans love to be binary. You know, we like to say it's black or white. It's you know yes or no, and so people are much more comfortable thinking, okay, I'm giving money away here and I'm making money there, and this is you know philanthropy and this is business, and the two are totally separate. Um, but actually, that's a really um, illogical way of thinking about it because basically, your your everything is a, an investment of one sort or another, and every investment has an impact. Uh, so I guess you know that's. That that was probably the the moment that I really started to think. I love that. I know we know money can talk, but can it sing? Um, and I agree with you on a lot of things, obviously. But mental accounting is definitely one of them. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about the philanthropic side. Um, I've become 
relative over the last few years really interested in the sort of effective altruism movement as I sort of explore that for myself and some of the principles. And one of the things that comes to life um, when I um, there's a book that was put out recently of you know doing good better, which sort of highlights for me a point that you just made, which is you know we really desire things to be you know good or bad or right or wrong, uh, but often our intuitions are you know misleading um or it's not always that easy uh to determine you know what is you know um black or white on a particular issue um maybe on that if i can i mean i I Mm. love that book and i couldn't agree more and it and uh, and just to make that point you know part of the penny dropping was the realization that um uh, you know, the investment world need to think about the impact. But it was also, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it's, it was also the philanthropic world needs to think more carefully about, you know, being ro- ri- rigorous in its approach to capital allocation because so much philanthropy is driven from the heart. And it's like, you, you know, it's all, you know, people, smart people check their brains out at the door when they walk into the philanthropy room. And just you know, you know, the, it, it, that has to change because there's as you as as that book demonstrates, there have been so many unproductive philanthropic projects and still are. Yeah, and so uh, William McCaskill, who wrote the book uh, "Doing Good Better," co-founder of the Effective Altruism Movement, would be a recommend. It seems from both of us that's um, definitely unscripted, but but great. Um, and it, so, if in the philanthropic world, Bonnaby, we have to vote or move with our head and our heart so not leave our kind of investment brain at the door i wonder if a listener could accuse the investment world of leaving their heart at the door and investing purely with kind of you know the kind of like you talked about you know we've we've the industry itself has moved to a much more short-term focus obsession with relative benchmarks um and you know incentivizing sort of short-term optimization behavior which may actually conflict with some of our, you know, longer term aspirations of actual value creation in society. Um, I just want to, again, given your purview now, like, is there anything that you think about when it comes to sort of the conventional wisdom or the prevailing wisdom in the marketplace that you believe that contradicts um, that or, could, you know, we, we could be thinking about differently as we begin to segue into, you know, your process and how you think about differentiating your investment process from the rest of the marketplace as an active investor. Just really curious your thoughts on where you think the, the, the marketplace or the, in general has kind of got this wrong or, or where you where you hunt um, to, to see where, where we can differentiate and create an advantage. Yeah, I mean, well, well firstly, I, I mean, I do think um, that the sort of head and heart rule applies to everything in, in life. I'm, I'm slightly nervous saying that because the one thing I don't want to give anyone the impression of is that, you know, as as an asset manager, um, you know, we should be allocating our clients' money with a view to sort of, you know, achieving philanthropic goals. That's not our mandate. But what I do think is that so much of investing is it requires qualitative as well as quantitative uh, analysis and you know a lot of qualitative analysis is sort of you know is tapping into the right side it needs to tap into the right side of the brain and not just the left and I think so I, I think it you know if I were to simplify it I think one of the problems in investing is um, it's almost unacceptable to deploy the right side of the brain I'm probably I, I, I don't know if you've ever read a, a book called the, the master and his emissary 
sorry, this is a, I know it's turning mm-hmm. a bit of a, a, a book recommendation, <laughs> yeah. but um, by um, a guy called Ian McGilchrist. But it's fascinating, and 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 he goes into this um, a lot, and 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 his premise is we've sort of tried to create this divide between these two two parts of our our brain between the sort of logical reason you know reason driven side and and the um sort of intuitive creative side and that's had disastrous consequences and actually we're much you know both are a critical component of of uh, of success um and, and sort of you know of hu- humanity working properly and i think that's true in investing and i think so much of investing requires um both the rigorous you know you know objective quant driven analysis but also um you know the we 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 need to free up our sort of creative and intuitive side because that you know often is is a source of great insight um so yeah that would probably be my that's probably rather a broad and and and, and sort of <laughs> overly right-sided uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> no, answer no, to your question no but then maybe let me be more so again i agree and, and one of the things that um I really appreciated learning from you a few years ago was it was a similar sort of dichotomy that the marketplace has created around value versus growth investing. And I think, you know, you'd put it to me very vividly that, you know, why would I cut off half of my brain? You know, why would I want to invest in a stock that is at astronomical valuations and unlikely generate return? And equally, why would I invest in something that might be a terrific valuation, but has no growth prospects to, to invest with only half of your kind of mindset doesn't really make kind of much sense. Um, so I, I appreciate that, you know, that what you're talking about there in a slightly different context. But maybe let me be more specific. How, maybe if you could just describe how you think ESG integration, particularly in the last few years, right, as we've sort of, the, the industry has moved and there's so much coalescence around this from every stakeholder that we care about, our clients, the regulators in the marketplace, corporates themselves and data providers, etc. You know, the, the, there's really so much momentum behind this. How does that affect your process for, you know, the research, the selection, the portfolio construction that you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, I, I think that um, the the increasingly intense uh, focus from from clients and regulating this is is great and and welcome, but it's also entirely aligned with what I think, and I'm not alone in this, you know, I think most of us on the investment team think is, is how we should be doing our job. Um, and that is, um, is thinking through some of the um, less easily modelable or less modelable sort of elements of, of um, the investment equation. So I think, you know, a big part of the problem uh, that we're addressing here and, and you know, it goes back to sort of excessive short termism, etc. is is, you know, we people tend to sort of get focused on um on the numbers and you know you know it, specifically for you know uh, you know investors in, in, in companies, whether it's equity or, or fixed income, you know, anal- you know, pre- modeling companies' profitability over a, a relatively short time period um and you know assessing whether they're sort of going to you know meet or beat expectations and it always comes down to sort of you know the 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 earnings model and and as a result there's just the the risk is you underestimate some of the sort of less easily modelable less modelable but 
equally, if not far more important characteristics, characteristics of a, you know, durable business. Um, so I think that there is this very, you know, this, there's a very clear, um, movement that is part driven by external stakeholders, but it's actually also sort of, I think from within the industry of, you know, we've got to sort of, we've got to address that and, and try and better understand some of these, um, material, but hard to model risks and opportunities that companies are exposed to. And there, there are so many different flavors of this. I mean, there's obviously very specific, um, social and environmental issues that certain companies are exposed to. So obviously, you know, companies that uh, emit high levels of, of CO2 are going to have to find ways of transitioning their business model so that they stop doing that. And for some, it's going to be easier than others. And it's, again, it's very, very industry specific, very, in some cases, very company specific. Equally, there are some companies that may have benefited from um, being able to uh, lower their uh, wage costs either by offshoring or by you know basically moving to less unionized um, labor and and that trend is unsustainable and in fact I think is is likely reversing so those those sort of risks but I think what we also need to do is just sort of take a step back a bit and and, and try and sort of try and understand and get a feel for the sort of the softer and sort of you know less intangible aspects of 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 corporate health, um, I, I I will sort of say you know we 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 can't we can't just rely on um, on the numbers to tell us whether a company's in good health. We've got to sort of lift up the bonnet and look look beneath and sort of um, you know really try and sort of f- um, feel the hear the 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 heartbeat of the company and understand. What goes on inside it? What 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 are the real what are the values of of, of the organisation? Um, what is the relationship between management and employees and other stakeholders? And you know, do employees like working there? All those sort of things. And um, it's hard. It's really hard to get um, to 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 build tangible evidence on issues that are by definition intangible. But having said that actually when you when you see it you know it you know and there are there are definitely companies out there that just stand out in my mind for being um for having exceptionally strong corporate cultures and i've always tended to gravitate uh, towards those when in investing again i think you're making a fascinating point i'm glad we're talking about culture as nebulous as that can be because lots of esg risks opportunities if you like are by their very nature, intangible, hard to measure, hard to properly quantify, have often lived outside of models and don't have, you know, long histories going back a very long time. We're seeing that with climate change. We're seeing that with sort of human rights risks. How how do you quantify that in a way that is, you know, economically priceable by an investor or even a corporate or in the marketplace? And at the end of the day, I think, I think this is a judgment call that ultimately you you have to make. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't assessment frameworks that you use. And again, hopefully we can talk about some of them 
Um, but I think that's a really powerful point. Um, and I think that's what makes it, for me, actually really fascinating, right? The fact that I'm a big believer that the best practice, the science, hasn't fully crystallized on how we're going to do this. So it's a really actually exciting field in our marketplace. It can be scary, but actually to embrace that is where I think the value is going to be. And and so, um, again, I don't know if you agree with that um, or if you think about that differently, but um, maybe if there are some specifics in your portfolios um, that we can talk about in terms of the process, the thesis, and sort of how any, any shifts that you've seen over time as you've, as you've thought through some of these issues. Well, I definitely agree that um, that science can only get you so far. I actually, I mean, I, I sometimes think that we have the same view of science now that people had of religion 500 years ago, you know, whereby um, you know, religious beliefs were set in stone. And if, if the priest said something was so, it was so. And if you disagreed, you might get you know, burnt at the stake um, <laughs> as a heretic. And I almost feel that's true with, with science now. And I don't, I'm not, you know, one of these sort of wacky anti-vaxxers or anything like that. But I just think it's important to recognise that, you know, a lot of science is, involves a degree of, of, of a, a lack of precision, a degree of, of, um, of speculation, you know, that not everything, not every variable is, is clearly understood. Um, and, you know, so the, the, and of course, science changes. So what's, you know, what, what you know, science is continually evolving, um, you know, and people are discovering new stuff. Um, so I think when it, bringing this back to, to ESG, it's a really, I mean, the whole area of ESG, which needs to say, because this is the world we live in, is everyone is desperately trying to come up with, with sort of tools um, uh, you know, and, and systems to enable us to measure it. But so much of it is unmeasurable. I mean, as you say, on, on the social side, really, I mean, there's a few metrics you can look at and say, well, that's interesting, like sort of corporate turnover or, you know, wage disparity or stuff like that. But, but even those metrics are, you know, can be very misleading. Um, but you can't really, you can't put a number on what... Uh, on human experience. And that's ultimately what social, everything about social is human experience. What's the employee's experience like? What's the supplier's experience? What's the customer's experience? So, you know, so all of that is by definition unquantifiable. And then even on the environmental side where there's, there are things you can, you know, there's more scope for measurement, but the measurements are imperfect. I mean, if you take um, carbon emissions, you know, for, for, for example, yeah, we probably have pretty good data on what companies scope one and scope two emissions are. So scope one is the emissions that's generated directly from their operations. Scope two is the, the emissions that are generated from the power that they uh, they buy. But but what we have very little real understanding of is the scope three emissions. In other words, the emissions that are created up and down the supply chain, uh, yeah, up, up and down the value chain. So both by suppliers and, and, and customers. Um, and and that's much harder to measure. And in many cases, it's much more significant. So, I mean, if you take, say, some of the food companies, they you know have very high scope free emissions given the the agricultural agricultural based supply chain. And then obviously oil and gas companies, they don't have very high emissions scope one and two, but they have huge emissions in scope three for obvious reasons. So all of this, you know, it's just it's it's an interesting metric, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. So, you know, there's no, there's no substitute for actually engaging the brain and trying to use 
judgment as well as objective data to to arrive at uh, at a conclusion. And then the, the the final thing, of course, is you know it's one thing to measure what a company is doing right now, but in the case of um, of of climate change, I mean, it, what matters is where a company's going. The fact that a, a, an oil and gas company has very high uh, carbon footprint is not a reflection on necessarily that it's a bad company. I mean, of course, it's got a high carbon footprint. They, they, they produce oil and gas. And that oil and gas, by the way, is absolutely critical to the, the functioning of humanity. If we stop using oil and gas tomorrow, um, you know, that would trigger a human catastrophe that on a different um, level to anything that could be triggered by climate change. So, you know, it, 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 we, we, the trying to figure out how the world is going to transition off fossil fuels and over what time frame that's achievable is really difficult um, and cannot be computed. <laughs> you know, it, there's, there's just too much um, uncertainty and imprecision. So, you know, in our job, we have to figure out how different companies are positioned um, to understand the extent to which the risk is manageable or not, and therefore how to price it, um, and also to understand you know, which companies in different industries may be ahead, because obviously that's a source of competitive advantage and therefore an opportunity. Um, and, um, and, 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 and we have to engage with companies too, because you know, we, 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 as well as trying to figure out whether they're good investments, we want to make sure, as you know, we've signed up to you know, some major collaborative um, initiatives like Net Zero Asset Manager Initiative and the Climate Action 100. And so we're part of a, a much broader uh, in asset manager investment ecosystem that's trying to encourage companies to do what needs to be d- done to help decarbonize their operations. But a lot of the time we don't know and, and nor do they. So, you know, there's an element of, you know, we have to be forceful. Um, you know, we have to say, you know, you've got to do this but also be humble and recognize well, we don't necessarily always know exactly what it is they've got to do. So it's a, so it's a you know, it requires, um, you know, a blend of, 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 of different skill sets and different ways of thinking um, that don't necessarily accord with how people, you know, where the natural tendency most people have is to simplify everything and put it into a box and, you know, you know bring it down to a simple binary outcome. Yeah, very much agree, especially on the, need for constructive dialogue to create real change. I think it's tempting in this kind of binary desire to all these heuristics that we have to kind of simplify our lives to think that you're either an activist investor or you're kind of passive and sort of a, and I think there are there's more work being done on this by you know various academics but this idea that you can be more constructivist as a engager to actually a more long-term oriented more open in dialogue, as you say, more humble to recognize that, you know, our job is not to tell an energy company how to run their business, um, but to represent the views of a stakeholder that is an owner or part owner of that business or, or a lender to that business. And how do we sort of help them understand the outside noise and signal um, to how to sort of transform and, and be a part of that journey? I think that's a really critical point that I think you know we we I think are going to stand on for quite some time um are as you think about you know the obviously this is such a broad area are there any themes in the world of sustainable investing as you talked about risk and opportunity and sort of weighing the sort of trade-offs and thinking about that are there any themes that you're watching 
that you know you you think about playing out that might be a material risk or opportunity for your strategies um yes uh, i mean so i'm trying to think where well uh, so one interesting one i sort of touched on this earlier is that um the uh a lot of the focus on climate change and the transition energy tra- has been focused on the energy transition so as you think about you know and, and you know the energy is i don't know 70 80% of of all, all carbon emissions so to the extent that we can um decarbonize um power generation and um and then electrify you know many um industries or transportation and heating of buildings so that 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 previously would have directly used fossil fuels that will obviously have a, a huge impact um i think that uh what what's probably had less focus thus far is, is um is the agricultural su- su- supply chain you know, which is a very significant source of of carbon emissions and not just carbon emissions but actually also any number of uh, environmental and social risks i mean you know soil erosion um biodiversity loss uh, and in some cases very serious social concerns i mean uh, you know child labor modern slavery probably um are, are fairly prevalent in parts of the global ag supply chain um and as we touched on earlier it's very difficult for um companies to always know what's going on down the chain i mean they have um pretty good visibility into the into their immediate suppliers but what they don't really have is much visibility in the supply chain beyond that but ultimately it's you know it's their responsibility and so and and they may well end up getting you know you know so there there are externalities there that they're not currently paying for and, and nor are their customers and so what happens when when that changes so that's that's definitely one concern um and then sort of to the same on the same theme i suppose of sort of the the importance of the land and and natural capital um you know i i'm i'm interested in what the potential for um things like forestry and timberland are for as a as a potential um solution and and not just forestry but actually the the marine environment it's very it's quite hard to play this for i mean with you could you can play forestry through um there are you know obviously timberland investments you can make harder to do it on the marine side but the the you know i think that the, we're still exploring and trying to understand the extent to which um nature can provide the solution to carbon sequestration um and i think that that uh, that could be very a very interesting theme I agree I, I i think each of us in this space our heart probably goes to one particular theme uh, at a moment in time um and of course there is so much energy and focus on climate right now we are talking right now just in the aftermath of COP26 where there's obviously you know lots of pledges around you know uh protecting uh, the forests and um limiting methane etc cetera, etc cetera. so climate is definitely on the agenda and, and very high up the agenda for me personally sort of biodiversity loss is i think going to be the sort of the thing that dwarfs uh climate change and again that's a opinion um and and you know there's some really interesting work that's only really just emerging 
on the economics of biodiversity loss and how we think about it. But if climate is hard, and I completely agree with you on how we measure it, the nature-based solutions and, and biodiversity loss for corporates is, you know, 10 times harder in terms of how they're really going to measure their impacts on some of those. So again, really, really interesting on how we sort of think about um, some of those opportunities and and then to your point at the end, how we play them. Um, so um, bottom line, I just maybe some sort of quick question, quick fire questions to, to end um, in terms of taking a step back and thinking again about but you, is there, we've talked a lot about books uh, on this podcast. Again, this is in the middle of November. So if people are thinking of furnishing their Christmas reading lists, um, is there any kind of book, article, piece of literature that you've shared or recommended the most? doesn't have to be specific to sustainable investing, just, you know, generally that you think is the most thought-provoking. I always struggle with that question. So I, I, I need to go and look at my books I have read list because I then uncover millions of books that are just absolutely wonderful and i couldn't remember highly but given what we've been talking about okay there's a couple come to mind one is um uh a book called wild wilding by isabella tree which is about this uh, the um the rewilding project that she and her husband carried out in on a four thousand acre estate in sussex which is actually very close to where i live which is fascinating it's beautifully written and it, it and it talks to um a lot of the issues, including around biodiversity loss and 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 biodiversity gain when when land is managed more efficiently. So that I I really enjoyed that book. For anyone interested in 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 natural capital solutions, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Um, and then sort of on a sort of separate note, I mean I just think going further back, um, Nassim Taleb's book Fooled by Randomness, which I think I read about nearly twenty years ago. Um, is I think a must read for anyone in not just in investment. Anyway. It just, it I think he he, he he's a I'm a big fan of Taleb. I mean I, I I sometimes think he would have sold many more books if he employed an editor. <laughs> um, but um, but I did, they're all they're all very stimulating, and that was his first one. And I think just the whole notion of of how we and we we fail to understand sometimes how random world is and we're constantly looking to sort of create patterns because it makes us feel better and and leads us to all sorts of false uh conclusions and, and false sort of uh sense of security so i think anyone who hasn't read that should definitely um should definitely rectify that we talked a little bit of well a lot actually about philanthropy and work that you do outside of mfs is there anything else that you sort of devote your time to i know you're home today, you know, with your dog, which I'm sure takes up your time. What else is taking up your time, Barnaby, outside of um, thinking about sustainability and managing portfolios on behalf of clients at MFS? One of my challenges, in all honesty, I I feel that I'm a bit like a a small child that's entered a sweet shop and is walking around. And I remember my son being like this when he was little and and sort of gathering things that he wants uh, or, or it's a sweet shop or a toy shop and you keep sort of loading up you know, sweets or toys and you you just can't you can't actually carry them all but you can't bring yourself to put any of them back and that's slightly how I feel about my life right now because I'm I'm pretty um, full-on obviously with with responsibilities at MFS and the, uh, the sustainability front and and also as a portfolio manager for Prudent Wealth and Prudent Capital um, and then you know I mentioned this the foundation we set up which takes up probably the the biggest part of my spare time and then there's all these other things i i want to be doing like i'm a very keen uh sailor 
and um, I also I love being outdoors. So I love going for long walks or also ride a, my horse when I can uh, at weekends. So all these different pursuits that I want to um, to to do, and there really isn't room for them all. So that's I suppose the the curse of of good fortune of having lots of fun things to fill one's day. Lots of exciting hobbies. Um, last thing I've I've learned through my reading of behavioral science that um people only ever remember two things it's the peak end rule they remember the best part of a conversation and they remember the very last thing so the very last thing i want to ask you is if there was one message that you would love to give the listener the clients in the audience today um what message do you think is the most important to get across to them embrace complexity and be and related to that um be comfortable with with uncertainty and and vagueness and nuance because that is the reality of life and and every attempt you make to sort of simplify it and put it compartmentalize it just it 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 reduces your understanding of the world thanks so much barnaby i really really appreciate your time and your pearls of wisdom throughout this conversation thank you also to our listeners for joining us for this our inaugural podcast episode In future episodes, I'm going to be speaking with key members of each of our ESG working groups on the important topics such as climate change, sovereign risk, societal impact, and of course, governance. The next conversation is going to be a deep discussion on climate change. So please stay tuned.